pray. Amen. It was, uh, <clears throat> I was informed, I should say, in the middle of the afternoon, it was, it, it, I was approached as if this was a, a crisis situation. Uh, it was Burge Troxel who had come to me, and, and uh, Justin, by the way, you might not start the recording yet, um, and, and Burge informed me that tonight is, is Bedlam 3. OU and OSU are playing for a, a third time in this basketball season to try to play into the Big 12 tournament. Uh, which tells you something about the success of the years, or the, the success that they've had this year. And uh, he wanted me to put the, the game up on the screen behind me, um, or up on the screens in the back, so that uh, as you listened attentively, you could also keep track of the score. We're not going to do that, but I am going to share a few uh, Bedlam-related jokes before we get started tonight. Uh, I didn't go to either school, so neither of the, none of these are at my expense. Uh, I don't really have a dog in the hunt, but some of these are kind of funny. How many OU freshmen does it take to change a light bulb? None. That's a sophomore course. What does an OU student call an OSU student after graduation? Boss. Yeah, there you go. What do you call a pretty girl in Stillwater? A visitor. Uh. (laughs) Did you hear what happened to the OSU fan when he found out that 90% of all car accidents occur within five miles of home? He moved. That's exactly right. You can uh, inject, take those and and put in whatever it is your your rival team is and enjoy those. That's for free tonight. Uh, Tonight we're going to be studying the ninth king of Judah. And this is probably a king you're not acquainted with, King Amaziah. I've talked to three or four people this week and kind of asked, hey, tell me what you know about King Amaziah. We're like, I don't know. And and I've appreciated this study on a personal level because I consider these sections of Kings and Chronicles, they're, they're kind of the darker shadows of the Old Testament. These are the spots where the pages in your Bible sort of stick together. You don't frequent these cautionary tales and these tragic accounts very frequently. And so just by way of review, let's talk about where we've been been thus far. Before the year 931 BC, Israel was ruled by three successive kings, Saul, David, and David's son, Solomon. David was from the tribe of Judah, and God had made a a covenant with David concerning a son from his line who would one day come and and reign over Judah in in, in perfect righteousness, or reign over Israel, I should say, all all of Israel, in perfect righteousness and justice. So the line of Judah was very, very important to Israel's hopes and to their future. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he takes over in about 931 B.C., And just as he is being crowned king at a place called Shechem, something significant takes place. The kingdom is divided. So the ten tribes break off, becoming a northern kingdom that we call Israel, and the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they are left. They had the city of Jerusalem, and they were called the kingdom of Judah. Southern kingdom, Judah, northern kingdom, Israel. And the northern kingdom, they would exist for about 209 years. They would be ruled by 20 different kings. All of those kings would be wicked. 
and they would be conquered by the Assyrians in 722 BC, never to reconstitute themselves ever again. The southern kingdom of Judah, the one that we're giving most of our concentration to, they would last 345 years. They would also be ruled by 20 kings. About half of them would be wicked, and they would be destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. After about 70 years of captivity, a remnant of this southern kingdom would come back to the land, and that's what we're going to be studying after Easter on Sunday mornings as we break into the book of Nehemiah, their return to Jerusalem, their return to the land. And so last week we saw how God rescued the kingdom of Judah from the clutches of wicked Athaliah. When Athaliah thought she had killed all the descendants of King David, when she thought the line of Judah was snuffed out, God had this little baby hidden. The baby was raised secretly by the high priest and his wife until he was seven years old. When the time was right, Jehoiada, the priest, he had little Joash declared king. Uh, And at that point, King Athaliah was put to death. We then saw how how Joash, he he would go on, he would do many great things for the Lord, and he would do them as long as Jehoiada the priest was around to guide him. But when Jehoiada died, Joash walked away from the Lord, he began to practice idolatry, even had Jehoiada's son, Zechariah, killed for trying to rebuke Joash. So Joash had this kind of surrogate faith. It wasn't his own, it belonged to someone else. Jehoiada was his God consciousness And when Jehoiada died, everything that resembled trust in the Lord for Joash died with him. Joash himself was assassinated by some of his own servants. And then his son Amaziah comes to the throne. And as we will see, Amaziah comes to the throne at age 25. He would be king in some capacity for 29 years. I'll explain explain that idea of some capacity as we move along this evening. But let's go ahead and look at 2 Chronicles 25. 2 Chronicles 25. I'm going to read the whole chapter, uh, and then we'll walk through these different points together. Starting in verse 1. Amaziah was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Johadan of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord yet not with a whole heart. And and as soon as the royal power was firmly his, he killed his servants who had struck down the king, his father. But he did not put their children to death, according to what was written in the law, in the book of Moses, where the Lord commanded, fathers shall not die because of their children, nor the children die because of their fathers, but each one shall die for his own sin. Verse 5. Then Amaziah assembled the men of Judah and set, them by, uh, and set them by fathers' houses under commanders of thousands and of hundreds for all of Judah and Benjamin. He mustered those 20 years old and upward and found that there were 300,000 choice men fit for war, able to handle spear and shield. He hired also 100,000 mighty men of valor from Israel for 100 talents of silver. Again, that's the north. He went to the north to get these guys. But a man of God came to him and said, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you, for the Lord is not with Israel, with all of these Ephraimites. It's just a synonym for those in the northern kingdom. But go, act, be strong for the battle. Why should you suppose that God will cast you down before the enemy? For God has power to help or to cast down. And Amaziah said to the man of God, 
But what shall we do about the hundred talents that I have given to the army of Israel? The man of God answered, The Lord is able to give you much more than this. Then Amaziah discharged the army that had come to him from Ephraim to go home again. And they became very angry with Judah and returned home in fierce anger. But Amaziah took courage and led out his people and went to the valley of salt and struck down 10,000 men of Seir. The men of Judah captured another 10,000 alive and took them to the top of a rock and threw them down from the top of the rock and they were dashed to pieces. But the men of the army whom Amaziah sent back, not letting them go with him to battle, raided the cities of Judah from Samaria to Beth Horon and struck down 3,000 people in them and took much spoil. After Amaziah came from striking down the Edomites, he brought the gods of the men of Seir and set them up as his gods and worshipped them, making offerings to them. Therefore the Lord was angry with Amaziah and sent to him a prophet who said to him, Why have you sought the gods of a people who did not deliver their own people from your hand? But as he was speaking, the king said to him, Have we made you a royal counselor? Stop. Why should you be struck down? So the prophet stopped but said, I know that God has determined to destroy you because you have done this and have not listened to my counsel. Verse 17. Then Amaziah, king of Judah, took counsel and sent to Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us look one another in the face. And Joash, the king of Israel, sent word to Amaziah, king of Judah, a thistle on Lebanon, sent to a cedar on Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son for a wife. And a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled down the thistle. You say, see, I have struck down Edom, and your heart has lifted you up in boastfulness, but now stay at home. Why should you provoke trouble so that you fall, you and Judah with you? But Amaziah would not listen, for it was of God in order that he might give them into the hand of their enemies, because they had sought the gods of Edom. So Joash, king of Israel, went up, and he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another in battle at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his home. And Joash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Joash, son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh, and brought him to Jerusalem, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem for 400 cubits, from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate. And he seized all the gold and silver and all the vessels that were found in the house of God in the care of Obed-Edom. He seized also the treasuries of the king's house, also hostages, and he returned to Samaria. Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Joash, the son of Jehoiahaz, king of Israel. Now the rest of the deeds of Amaziah from first to last are they not written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. From the time when he turned away from the Lord, they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish. But they sent after him to Lachish and put him to death there. And they brought him upon horses, and he was buried with his fathers in the city of David. This is God's word. So from this tragic story, we're going to look at Amaziah's life in four disappointing frames. His superficial obedience, his functional unbelief, his illogical idolatry, and then his detrimental pride. So first, his superficial obedience. There's a very damning detail in verse 2. I think Mark pointed this out last week at the close of his message. And this detail, I think, should be written across the whole story of Amaziah's life because I think it explains really all the actions of this king. And the detail is that Amaziah's devotion to the Lord, it was not 
wholehearted. Now, I don't know how many of you love breakfast. It's my favorite meal of the day. I'm in charge of breakfast at my house, and sometimes that's just cereal and oatmeal. Very often it's eggs with pancakes or or eggs with waffles or eggs with biscuits. But at least one day a week, this is the big day, it's eggs and bacon. That's the best morning of the week. And I tell my kids when I serve that to them, I said, you know, the chicken was very involved with your breakfast this morning, but the hog was totally committed. The eggs and the bacon. The, the chicken was involved, but the hog, he, he was all in. And Amaziah, he's more like the chicken. He gave something of himself to the Lord, but he's nothing like the hog. He, he was never fully committed, and really it shows as we navigate uh, his, his life. He was half-hearted. He did not give his whole heart to the Lord. There's this heart motif through all of Scripture I even preached on it this last weekend in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, um, about loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, this sort of key uh, to, uh, to, to Jewish life, to their religious life, was loving God with all of their heart. David is described as this man after God's own heart. That doesn't necessarily mean that David was perfect. It just means that his motives were typically on the right track because of the condition of his heart. That's not what we can say about Amaziah. Amaziah's heart was off track. It was out of kilter. It was not whole. It was not perfect or complete. And early on, there is some honoring of the law of God that we see. And it relates to how he handles those who murdered Joash, his dad. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says that he had those who murdered Joash, he had them killed. So, so he takes these treasonous men out, which seems kind of bloodthirsty and brutal, but this is an accepted and customary action in this day and age. So if a new monarch had risen to power, he needed to protect himself if the old mark had gone down by, you know, at, at the hands of some enemy, and he would need to eliminate those who had been in resistance to that previous regime. This happened all the time. And normally it would get kind of out of control. He would, they would not just kill those who, who, who killed the previous ruler. They would kill any and all who were associated with him. And so there's a provision in the law that told the Jews to not take this measure too far. It's Deuteronomy 24.16. It's there stated in the text. That fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So there's some honoring of the law in this matter. Here Amaziah, he he fits the description in the first half of verse 2 that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. That decision reflects that description. And this was right. You know, by doing it this way, Amaziah, he held up justice. He held up the stability of the monarch, of the leadership. And at the same time, he exhibited some mercy to the family who was responsible for the murder of Joash by not killing those father's children or or others that might have been associated. But this was superficial in in my opinion, and I say that for a couple of reasons. First, the word killed there in verse 3, this is a word used throughout Chronicles And it's typically used in a way to describe violence, kind of a brutal violence. This is is beyond just justice. This is strong vengeance on display. 
And, and we see this attitude in Amaziah elsewhere in the passage. If you recall what I just read, uh, just the, the brutality of, of taking those 10,000 men of Seir and, and throwing them one by one off the cliffs in that region. It's a violent man. So he obeyed the letter of the law, but there was a way that he carried out the killing of these servants that had a certain brutal character to it. The second reason I say this obedience is superficial is because right here, this is about where Amaziah's obedience stops. You know, had he continued to obey God's word, I think my opinion of him would be different. His life and his reign as king would, would also have been different. But, but the way the rest of his life goes, it proves that this initial act of obedience to the Lord's word, his submission to it, it was, it was superficial and somewhat empty, which is what you would expect from someone with, without a wholehearted faith or trust in the Lord. Okay, let's move to this next session, this section that begins in verse 5. Functional unbelief. And I call this second point functional unbelief because even though there is a point here where Amaziah listens to the Lord's prophet, the whole process of going to battle against the Edomites, it was littered with unbelief. And by the way, the record of going to, to battle against Edom, this is the place where Second Chronicles, the record of of Amaziah's life here that we're studying, and 2 Kings 14, the corresponding record of his life, this is where the, the, the two accounts differ at this battle with Edom. There's nothing contradictory in the two accounts. It's just that Chronicles gives a little bit more information than does 2 Kings. And the Edomites... Or, or, or the men of Seir, that's, those are synonymous terms. So when you see men of Seir, that means Edomites. When you see Edomites, that means men of Seir. And they are settled down in the region of Jordan, really around this area that you're probably familiar with, uh, where Petra would have been located. Um, and, and they had been in uh, subjection to King Jehoshaphat, uh, they were one of the places that was in submission to him, but in recent years, in, the, in, in this age of King Amaziah, they had gone independent. Uh, they were their own sort of nation state, and Amaziah didn't like that and, and wanted to make sure to put, them, to put them in their place. But the first action that highlights Amaziah's unbelief here is his numbering of the army. And the text clearly spells out how King Amaziah did this. Let's look here at verse 5. He assembled the men of Judah and set them by fathers' houses under commanders of thousands and hundreds for all Judah and Benjamin. He mustered those 20 years old and upward and found that there were 300,000 choice men fit for war, able to handle spear and shield. And if you remember in the story of Jehoshaphat, there is a much larger army numbered there. Over 1.1 million troops were at Jehoshaphat's disposal. But the record of those troops, it was just exactly that. It was a matter of record. It was not a deliberate action of Jehoshaphat to number these troops. With Amaziah, this is a very deliberate thing. Even kind of tells how he organizes the process. 
He wants to march to the Valley of Salt. He wants to attack these men of Seir, these Edomites, and he wants to make sure that he has enough troops to do it. Remember, Jehoshaphat was not a warring king. He just, he just put defenses in place. This guy's going to battle, and he, and he needs the confidence that he has what he needs to do it. And this should remind you of one of the sins of King David, and not Bathsheba and, and his murder of Uriah. It was the sin where he numbered his troops. And why is, is numbering your troops such a, such a grievous sin? Why is that discouraged by God? Because in numbering your troops, what are you doing? You are trusting their power and not God's power. You're looking to the carnal. You're looking to the earthbound. You're looking to, to, to men's strength and not God's strength. And this is why David would pin Psalm 20. Psalm 20, where it says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That was to be the anthem of each and every king. That was to be the anthem of the Israelite army, yet it was not the anthem of Amaziah. He got his troops together and he numbered them. They, they were his confidence. They were his strength. His heart lied with them, not with the Lord. But he did this with some skill, didn't he? Again, he showed some organizational ability. He groups them by family. You're going to fight a lot harder alongside your brother and your dad and your uncle than you are a stranger. So, so it seems he appealed to every earthly advantage as he's pulling this army together. So much so that, that 300,000 soldiers from Judah... This is not enough to appease Amaziah's fleshly confidence. He went and did something very rash and very foolish. He hires 100,000 mercenaries from the northern kingdom to join him in his fight against these men of Seir. And by this point in our study of these kings, you should know that whenever the south has attempted to ally itself with the north, bad things are going to happen. Amaziah has a very short memory, doesn't he? He, he? His own father would have been killed as a result of an alliance with the north had it not been for the courage of Jehoiada and his wife. Had it not been for the courage of, of those two, Amaziah wouldn't even exist. Joash would have, would have been killed along with the rest of that line of Judah. But that doesn't stop Amaziah from making this alliance. He, he knows that these troops from the north, that they're particularly nasty, that they're particularly ruthless, and so he recruits them for his crusade. And he pays them a sum of silver that equaled three and three-quarter tons of silver. Describes these in terms of talents. Talents would have been the largest unit of measure that they had. But it's about three and three-quarter tons of silver. And that seems like a lot, and it is a lot, it's approaching, in today's dollars, $2 million worth of silver. But do the math real quick. Split that amongst 100,000 northern kingdom soldiers, and that's like 20 bucks a guy. <laughs> that's what each of them is going to get. We'll talk about that here in just a second. And here, as this is unfolding, here's where Amaziah gets an opportunity for a course correction. I don't know if you've had those times in your life where where you're headed somewhere really destructive, really foolish, and God just gives you this way out. 
He sends somebody, he sends some truth, you hear some sermon, whatever. That's what, that's what occurs here. And it's by way of an unnamed prophet who basically says, listen, the, the Lord is not with Israel. Employing their forces, it does not strengthen you, it, wink, it weakens you. Why would you bring destruction on yourself? God has got this under control. Don't do this. Don't, don't take these 100,000 mercenary soldiers. And Amaziah's response is appropriately fleshly. He says, what about the money I paid them? What about all this silver? I gave them almost four tons of silver. And the response of the prophet is really beautiful. He says, the Lord is able to give you much more than this. Again, he's calling him back to the resources of Yahweh. This guy's fixated on the resources that he can surround himself with, whether it be soldiers or money or treasury or whatever. He's saying, the Lord is able to give you much more than this. The great preacher, Donald Gray Barnhouse, he tells the story of a shy little boy in a grocery store who was picking at a bin of raisins. And he was told by the generous grocer to, to go ahead and take as many raisins as, as he would like from the bin that, that held them. But the little boy shook his head and he, he refused the offer. And the grocer, who was, who was bent on being generous with the boy, took a handful himself and filled the upturned hands of the boy, causing him to receive twice as many raisins as he could have ever grabbed himself. And Barnhouse closes by saying, if you're looking for the best in life, why not turn your hands over so that God can fill them? He reserves the best for those who leave the choice to him. And that's what the prophet is telling Amaziah here. That look to God. God's got more for your supply than you could ever retain or obtain yourself. Look to him. Look to him. He'll, he'll supply the needs. He'll give you over and above what you might expect yourself to attain. That's what the prophet's saying. God has, has more for you than you're about to lose. Just trust him. And so Amaziah does. He doesn't want to be defeated. <laughs> and he's certainly drawn to the offer of abundance. So he listens to the prophet. He cuts his losses and he trusts the word of God here. He then marches to the battle, cuts down 10,000 men from Seir, captures another 10,000, throws them off a cliff, which again, I think this highlights his, his sort of vicious character. He violently had killed his father's assassins. Now he's violently done away with these 10,000 Edomites. But let's not forget the 100,000 from Israel who were told to go home. The text tells us that they went home angry. And to that, we're like, you know, why? Why would they have fierce anger, as the text says? I mean, they got their money, Amaziah, he didn't take it back. He didn't try to, to, uh, to go against his word or, or, or switch the deal. He just said, you don't have to fight. Well, the answer for their anger is that they took the job, not for the silver, they took the job for the spoil. When they would go down to Edom, they would conquer this area and with it would come great spoil so so the money the 
the, the lucrative nature of this whole thing was in the spoil that they would end up with from the battle. And since they're turned away, they decide then, okay, well, we'll get our plunder from Judah. And they go and they raid cities in Judah and they take actually 3,000 lives as they're doing this. So it just shows the way in which foolish decisions will often give you really dire and destructive consequences. He should have never allied with Judah or with Israel in this way. Uh, but he did, and even though he, got, he went against it, it still had consequences. Third point, illogical idolatry. This little section, verses 14, 15, and 16. This is interesting. So after the, the victory at, uh, at the Valley of Salt... As a part of his plunder, Amaziah's plunder, he brings back the gods, the idols of the men of Seir. And the text says very plainly that he worshipped them, which is, which is crazy. And again, I'll use the word illogical because it was the Lord, his Lord, Yahweh, the God of, of, of Israel, that had just given him victory. And I think this is a great example of how the goodness and the blessing of God it will often test our, our faith more than suffering or difficulty does. You know, it's when our lives are on easy street that we forget the Lord and trust in ourselves or trust in things. This is what's occurred with Amaziah. He just won. He, he doesn't have any reason to be dependent upon the Lord or upon anybody else for that matter. Which incited the Lord's anger the taking of these idols, the worship of these, of these gods. The Lord's angry. And so the unnamed prophet returns to him and asks this very ob obvious question. Why are you now bowing to the gods of Edom since they were apparently unable to protect the Edomites from the attack? It's a great question. I think, again, Amaziah's half-heartedness is, is, is being proven once more. He thought the Edomite gods, he thought they had as much to do with his victory as Yahweh. He had actually attributed power to, to, to them. He thought they favored him, perhaps. They failed to protect Edom from him and his troops, and so he felt that maybe they could serve him in other ways. He did not grasp their powerlessness, but attributed power to them. And he does this because he doesn't fully trust in the Lord. So, so he will trust in anything that he thinks benefits him, which is the heart of the lost person. Someone who does not trust in the Lord will trust in anything that they think benefits them. And so at this word from God delivered through this prophet, Amaziah gets angry himself, and he threatens him. He, he threatens that if he continue to speak, he, he just needs to stop. And, and he stopped, but he gives these final severe words for Amaziah. He says, I know that God has planned to destroy you. That's the, that's the last word from God that Amaziah would hear. You know, God is very kind in sending him a prophet. He's very, very kind in delivering the truth to Amaziah. Very kind in giving him these, these ways out, this, this, this grace and showing him the path that he should be on, but here, this is a rejection of God's mercy to the king. 
God's kind in sending him this correction, but, but he doesn't listen. One commentator said, he, God would have been right to send him to hell with a thunderbolt, but he doesn't. He sends him this, this, this word, this prophetic way out, but, but Amaziah shuts it down. And so at this point, now he's going the way that, that Paul describes at the start of the book of Romans, where the wrath of God is, is revealed in the giving over of the sinner to his desires. God is not going to let Amaziah just willfully go his own way. And so it's here really at this point that I think Amaziah's true colors are revealed. His, his half-hearted, lukewarm, tepid, self-serving faith is fully exposed. He, he has blatantly rejected the word of the Lord and the grace of, of Yahweh. And really the source sin in all of this in all of this, the, the idolatry, the superficial obedience, the, the numbering of the troops, this has all been pride. This is pride. It's a detrimental pride, which is our last point, point four. One thing um, I didn't mention early on is that the name Amaziah, it means Yahweh is mighty. Yahweh is mighty. Think about that. So the one word that you hear in your life more than any other is probably your own name. And so Amaziah, he had this constant reminder because of what his name was that Yahweh is mighty. Every time his mother called to him, every time a friend addressed him, every time a subject praised him, what was heard was that the Lord, Yahweh, is mighty. And so you'd think with that sort of brainwashing him over the years in a good way that he would trust the Lord in battle, that he would trust the Lord in worship, that he would trust the Lord in everything. But no, Amaziah's greatest battle is that he worshiped himself. He wanted to be mighty. He had this diabolical kind of pride. In thinking about this, I was reminded of a chapter in C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. And the chapter in, in the book is called The Great Sin. And listen to what he says as he, as he begins this section of the book. He says, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves, and the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking of is pride or self-conceit. He goes on, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that, they're mere, they're mere, excuse me, they're mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete 
anti-God state of mind. Which led him, led Amaziah, to do what he did next. He picked a fight. Proud people love to fight because pride loves to win. That's as true in marriage as it is in geopolitics. Proud people love to fight because pride loves to win. So in his pride, Amaziah picks a fight with the northern king, King Joash, or in some of your versions it might say Jehoash. Same guy, just different rendering of his name. Joash or Jehoash, I think people tend toward Jehoash to not get it confused with the king of the south that preceded Amaziah. So Jehoash or Joash is the king in the north, and that's the one Amaziah wants to go toe-to-toe with. He's feeling good about this victory over Edom. He's he's feeling supremely self-sufficient, and so now he wants to avenge the north for, for taking his silver and for plundering the cities of Judah and for all the other little border skirmishes that they have along the way. And so he tells Joash or Jehoash, come, let us look one another in the face. This is like when I was in middle school. You couldn't fight at school, you'd get in trouble. So the way that you told somebody that you wanted to fight was meet me behind Circle K. It was a Circle K right across from the school. And I never told a kid that. I'm trying to think if I ever got told that. If I did, I didn't meet him. Um, but, that, but that's how it went down. Meet me behind Circle K. Amaziah is saying the same thing. Come, let us look one another in the face. Jehoash's reply is really clever. It's in the form of a parable. A thistle in Lebanon sent to a cedar on Lebanon saying, Give your daughter to my son for a wife. And a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled down the thistle. Interpreting that insulting response means this. I'm a cedar is what Jehoash is saying. The cedars of Lebanon were were very, very, very tall trees, trunks about six to ten feet in diameter. I mean, they're not sequoias or anything like that, but compared to the trees in Israel, these were really, really large. He's saying, I'm a cedar, you're a shrub. You come to me with with a request, and a wild beast, the army of the northern kingdom, it's gonna mow you down. That's what this parable means. And he goes on and says, so, so stay at home. Just stay home. Why should you provoke trouble? That's an interesting phrase. So that you fall, you and Judah with you. This is a really solid response. This is good advice. And now, the northern kingdom's army was not large at this point in time. I was doing some reading today, and it was actually quite a bit smaller than the, than the army numbered here uh, for us at the first part of the chapter. But, but that little statement there, why provoke trouble? I mean, just practically think that through. We should ask ourselves that question from time to time. From, from, from time, to time. People say, you know, this is nothing serious. I, I can stop anytime I want. You know, you know, this flirting is nothing serious. I can stop anytime. This amount of al- alcohol is nothing serious. I can stop any time. This consumption of, of pornography is nothing really serious. I can stop. I'm in control of it. If you say those kinds of things, you are, are provoking. You're meddling with something that, that can hurt you deeply. You're showing pride in thinking that you can overcome it. 
Countless people have, have experienced great defeat because they've meddled or they've provoked trouble in places that they had no business being. This is, this is good advice from Joash, Jehoash, whatever you want to call him. Problem is, because of his little parable and kind of the way he frames it, it's also very, very provocative. To a proud person, this, this kind of response, calling him a thistle, calling, calling him a weed or a shrub, this is, like, this is like gasoline on a fire. This is just inciting rage in them. So in verse 21, it says he goes up. And they faced one another at Beth Shemesh, which was just a, a, a wide plain, really suitable battlefield, actually. And Judah was defeated, and Amaziah is captured. He's now a prisoner. But not only that, the consequences are not merely personal for the king. The damage is now corporate. This is going to affect the whole, the whole nation, the whole kingdom. You read on there, it says the walls, the city walls, sections of them are, turn, are torn down. If you turn over your note sheet tonight, you've got, uh, I think you've got a, a, a drawing of the city, at least what the city would have looked like from the reign of Solomon to about Hezekiah. That, that, that uh, outer line is, is the footprint of the city today. That those other lines are what it would have looked like during this time. And so from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate, so 400 cubits, it's about 200 yards, essentially. That's the section of wall that was destroyed. So, so the security of, of Jerusalem is compromised because Amaziah wanted to meet Jehoiash behind Circle K. He wanted to fight. He wanted to feel like the big man in the region. Didn't realize that it was going to completely compromise Jerusalem. The temple's plundered. It says they go in and, and take Take the gold, take the artifacts and the, and the devices for worship that were in the temple. So, so, so you've got the worship of Judah that's compromised. Hostages are taken, so people are taken into bondage. This is all because of Amaziah. And then listen to this sad conclusion of his life. From the time when he turned away from the Lord, they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem. And he fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to Lachish and put him to death there. A guy named Dillard, who's a really helpful commentator on Chronicles, he summarized it this way. He said, instead of, of royal building programs, the walls of Jerusalem were destroyed. Instead of wealth from the people and the surrounding nations, the king is plundered. Instead of a large family, there are hostages. Instead of peace, war. Instead of victory, defeat. Instead of loyalty from the populace, in a long life, there is conspiracy and regicide. That's the reign of King Amaziah. He's a half-hearted king. His heart was not whole in its devotion to the Lord. And so the word that had been given to Asa, it continues. That word in 2 Chronicles 16.9, that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth. He wants to give strong support to those whose hearts are what? Completely his. That's not Amaziah. His devotion is half-hearted. And as I said, though expressed through idolatry and unbelief and brutality, I think what Amaziah was truly up against was his own pride. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. This man is presented with great opportunities. He, he experienced great help from the Lord, but 
He's a double-minded man. He's got his own agenda. <clears throat> and I think when we're honest with ourselves, that's really what we're up against as well. We're up against our own pride. We're up against our own agendas. We're up against a radical self-centeredness that puts us at the center of most everything going on. And it's never to our benefit. Again, because I reviewed this, this chapter in Mere Christianity, I was struck by one of the closing paragraphs. I'm going to read it to you because it, it talks about the positive counterpart to pride, which is humility, which is something that, that I think we all strive for. We recognize God's grace and humility. But this is poignant. This is powerful. See, uh, Lewis goes on. He says, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. I was talking to somebody about humility the other day, and they say, you know, pride doesn't listen. Interpersonally, that's true. The prideful person that you're talking to, they're not listening to you as you're talking to them. Humble people, they do listen. And in our story, Amaziah, did he listen? Hardly, hardly at all. It was because of his pride. So next week we look at Uzziah. And if that name sounds familiar, you can, you can think of Isaiah chapter 6 in the year that King Uzziah died, right? Uh, high and lifted up, that, that calling of Isaiah the prophet comes to mind with that name. But you probably know nothing about him apart from that, right? Other than the statement of his death. Uh, we'll look at Uzziah uh, here next week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for today, for, uh, again, your word. Illuminate it in our hearts and minds by the work of your spirit. Uh, Lord, thank you for this, this study and, and what you're teaching all of us through it. Thanks for, for uh, giving us a, uh, a clear picture of what obstinance and pride, where it would lead us to the destruction of ourselves, to the destruction of those around us, and, and even more far-reaching than that sometimes. God, save us from our own pride. Save us from unbelief and idolatry and these things that we read here. Uh, we need your grace in these things, and we want to boldly appeal for it and ask, ask you to supply it. Uh, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.